You know, I think we can all agree that 2020 has been one of the craziest years in recent memory, maybe the craziest year of my life. Uh, if you don't remember, this year began with the continent of Australia being totally on fire. Then we nearly went to war with Iran. Uh, then the, a worldwide pandemic has broken out. And then racial protests have broken out against injustice, uh, not only in our country, but all around the world. And perhaps it might feel like maybe the world's going to end. Maybe the world as we know it at the least. And perhaps some of you are actually wondering, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the generation in which the Lord Jesus returns. But no matter what we think about Jesus' return, I think right now, we are all longing for God to heal the brokenness of our world, for God to right every wrong and to restore this world in His perfect love and His peace. And that's why I believe that this new sermon series we're launching, The Return, is so important because the return of Jesus is our world's greatest hope. It is the hope that our world needs desperately right now. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about how the return of Jesus is the hope of our world. Now, I think as we dive into the subject, we need to do a little, lay a little foundation of teaching here. And I think there's, there's a couple errors that Christians have when it comes to this subject. Uh, one error that Christians fall into is they become obsessed with the return of Jesus. You know, they, they become focused on dates and predictions, and they're scanning the news to see what's happening in the politics of our world. And, and some churches, this is what they preach about constantly, and they become obsessed. Now, the other error is for many Christians, they don't even think about the second coming at all. They may not even believe it or think about it, or maybe they're turned off by the obsessed Christians, and so they don't even really care about the second coming. We need to shoot somewhere down the middle. Uh, to be, have a robust view of the return of Jesus in a healthy way. Um, but I believe before we can come to have that healthy biblical worldview, uh, we have some potential barriers to confront uh, about this subject that might prevent us uh, from having a healthy view. Um, and I think some of these reasons, they are perhaps reasons that we avoid the subject at all. Um, and so let me point out a few barriers that we need to overcome before we can jump into the content. Uh, of, the, of the scripture passage today. Uh, the first potential barrier that we have is that Christians don't agree on the details. Christians across time, across cultures, have not agreed about the details of the return of Christ. If you study a little bit about the end times theology, you might hear terms like premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. Some of you are saying, what's the millennial? What's a trip? I don't know. Uh, the point is, the exact nature and circumstances surrounding Jesus' return are debated. And the Bible does not make the details perfectly clear. And so we, we shouldn't let the, the minutiae and the details of His coming divide us or distract us from thinking about this topic. Now, for those of you who like the details, would like to dive into the details, I'm happy to recommend some good books for you um, as a starting point. Uh, but for this series, we are going to stick to the things that Christians have had consensus about in church history. Um, and this is really what the covenant does best. We, we uh, teach what the Bible teaches clearly, and we look at the consensus of Christian teaching around the world over the last 2,000 years, and those are the things that we focus on. 
So there's a lot of room for uh, discussion and details outside of this, but we're not going to let the details that we might debate distract us from having the conversation. So that's one barrier that we have to overcome. Uh, a second barrier that we have to overcome is that perhaps we are embarrassed that it's been 2,000 years and that people have been wrong about his coming uh, in the past. Uh, one biblical scholar named Michael Holmes, uh, he kind of lays out different uh, examples of how people have talked about Jesus' coming in church history. You know, in the year 1000 AD, there were many Christians thought that Jesus was going to return. It's the year 1000. Of course he's coming back. But they were wrong. In the 14th century, there were so many famines and there were so many plagues that people surely thought Jesus was coming back. During the Reformation, there was so much upheaval politically and in the church that people thought the Lord was going to return then. Um, and then in the 1800s, and, uh, and especially in the USA, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists made actually predictions uh, about when Jesus to return. They, they set dates, and of course, they were wrong. Uh, and then if you remember, there, there was a big uh, um, concerted push around this topic in the 70s uh, with Hal Lindsey, and then really in the, in the 90s with the, the series Left Behind, and it really popularized a particular view of the end times that hasn't really been center in the Christian teaching. Um, in the year 2000, again, people were thinking maybe the Lord's going to return, and He didn't. So I think because of that history, we, there's many of us who don't want to be associated, uh, especially with some of those hysterical doomsday Christians and Jehovah's Witnesses and the like. Um, and so we end up avoiding the topic altogether. Or perhaps that doesn't really concern you, but perhaps you might be saying, you know, it's been 2,000 years. Maybe he's not really coming back after all. But that shouldn't be a barrier for us because the Bible itself deals with that issue. Let me show you from 2 Peter 3, verses 8 through 9. The Apostle Peter says, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So, some of the things that Peter is saying there is, God's sense of time is not our sense of time. He has a different understanding and experience of time. And Jesus could come back thousands and thousands of years from now, and that would be perfectly fine. Because God has his timing. I mean, have you ever considered the question, why did Jesus Christ come when he did the first time? Why was it 2,000 years ago at that moment in history? Now, we may not know exactly why, but we can affirm that Jesus Christ came the first time at absolutely just the right time. In fact, this is what the Apostle Paul affirms himself in Romans 5, uh, verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. It was just the right time in human history for Jesus to come when he did. And, and that means for us that because Jesus came at just the right time the first time, we can trust that he will come again at just the right time the second time. And, you know, Christians that lived centuries after the New Testament was written, they were not embarrassed that Jesus hadn't returned yet. They were not embarrassed that it didn't happen within a generation. They put it in their creeds and their confessions. 
And so we can trust that God has his timing and Jesus will come at just the right time. So let's not be embarrassed that it's been 2,000 years. God's timing is not our timing. He'll come at the right time. And finally, the third barrier that we need to address is that we think it's not essential. Now, you may not directly say this, but often by how we act and how we speak, we communicate that the return of Jesus is not central to our understanding of faith. I mean, how often do you speak about this topic? Is it part of your prayer life? Is it something you think about? You know, it, perhaps you might be wondering, thinking it's not essential for you. But I want to communicate to you as clearly as possible how essential this is, is and I want to show you some categories why it's so essential. Uh, the first is from the Bible itself. Stephen Seaman says the New Testament speaks either directly or indirectly about Jesus' return over 300 times. Now, we could get into all the different verses here, but there, there is a consistent biblical witness that Jesus is going to return. Then let's look at the liturgy of communion. In our church, uh, we even say this in the liturgy in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's right there. And then one of the uh, more well-known statements in the communion, communion liturgy that we often say at our church as well, we proclaim Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. See, if you don't have the come again part, it's not complete. Now, a few other examples, the Apostles' Creed. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. The Nicene Creed, he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will never end. And then to bring us up to a more modern time, one of our most well-known scholars on the Bible, N.T. Wright, he says about uh, Jesus' return that we cannot relegate it to the margins of our thinking, our living, and our praying. If we do, we shall pull everything else out of shape. We shall pull everything else out of our theology and our worship and our life gets out of shape when we don't have the full story. So we believe that this is essential for us. So let's, let's not get distracted by the details. We're going we're gonna to say it's perfectly okay that it's been 2,000 years. He's going to come at just the right time. And we affirm that this is a central tenet of the Christian faith. So let's dive into the question of what is the nature of Jesus' return? What's it going to be like? That's what we're going to dive into this morning. I invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 beginning with verse 14. That was our scripture reading for this morning. And I invite you to follow along with me. And we're going to be looking at three points from this passage about some of the things that we can know about his return. And the first point that we can learn from this passage is that Jesus' return will unite us with him face-to-face. -face. It's going to be a face-to-face -face reunion with Jesus Christ himself. This is what Paul says in verse 16. He says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Paul says Jesus himself is coming back. Now, we just completed our series on the ascension, right? And really the story of the ascension is really not complete because we're awaiting for Jesus to descend once again to come back to us. Um, and this time he's coming to judge the world and to renew the world and to unite us with himself. And this is exactly what happened and what was communicated to the, to the disciples when Jesus ascended. Let me remind you what, what, what happened during that story. 
After he said this, Jesus said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. That's the angels. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So in the idea in the doctrine of the ascension itself contains within it that Jesus is going to descend again and reappear in earth uh, from the spiritual dimension of heaven into the realm where we can visibly see him and be reunited with him. And friends, if I communicate anything else during this series about Jesus' return or about the end times, this is the main point. It's about Jesus It's about Jesus Christ and His presence, His return. So don't get distracted by all the details. It's about Jesus and our reunion with Him that's face-to-face. This is what Paul says after he describes all the details. In verse 17, he says, And so we will be with the Lord forever. That's the conclusion. We will be with the Lord Jesus forever. And this is what encourages us in these difficult times we find ourselves in. We know that we will be with Jesus Christ forever. And so whatever discussions we get into, that's the main point. You know, when I was in seminary, I had the great privilege of going to the land of Israel for about 24 days. And it was uh, was a wonderful experience, uh, and I... As an aside, I really recommend this to any Christian in their lifetime to go at least once to the Holy Land and to see for yourself these lands and these places that we read about and teach about. It is transformative. But the point, the point I'm making here is the, uh, of this story is I was going to be gone for 24 days. And it was going to be the longest time that Laura and I were ever to be apart in our married life. And it still has been the longest time. Now, some of you have been apart for much longer than this, and, and that's okay. But, but for us... This was going to be a really long time. Now, we had the benefit that we still could communicate with each other. We could uh, send some messages. We could get phone calls when we find, found that the time difference worked. Um, and I think we even had Skype or FaceTime then as well. Um, but gosh, haven't we all been taught during this time that the digital connection does not replace being face-to-face? It's just not the same. It's not the same. There's not the same connection in the love. And, and as we were, as I was in Israel, the longer that we were apart, the longer I longed to return and be re- reunited with my wife. The distance really does make the heart grow fonder. It will make the reunion all the more sweeter. And this is what it is like and should be like in our relationship with Jesus. The longer that we're apart from His direct presence, the more that we will long to be with him. And just like when I was in Israel, I could still communicate with Laura. And in the same way, we still have a relationship with Jesus. He's with us by his spirit. He's always with us. We can talk with him. We can pray. But yet the Bible says we see only in part, but then we will see face to face. So when he returns, our relationship to him will be full and direct. It will be face to face. There'll be no more barriers between us and Jesus Christ. And I don't even think that we can begin to imagine and fathom how glorious 
and how wonderful and how amazing this is going to be. No eye has seen, no ear has heard the wonderful things that God has in store for us. The glory that's going to be revealed. You know, I've heard some people talk about, you know, what it, what, what it is going to be like when we finally reopen as a church and when, when there's no more barriers, when there's no more restrictions between us and other people. And I've heard pastors say that they're going to run up and down the aisles, they're going to high-five people and clap with people, and people are going to be crying and we're going to be singing and it's going to be so wonderful. And as wonderful as that is going to be, it's going to be infinitely better when we are with Jesus Christ face-to-face and the multitude of angels and the multitude of believers We will sing, we will shout, we will cry, we will laugh, and the purpose of our lives will be fulfilled when we are in His presence. Friends, it's going to be glorious. That's why we need that hope, because it is our hope. That's what we believe. Jesus' return will unite us with Him face to face. It's going to be amazing. That's point number one. Point number two, Jesus' return will be visibly glorious. His return will be visibly glorious to the world. Again, it's going to be something so magnificent that we, we, almost, we have to use our imaginations to think about what it's going to be like. I hope you're uh, good at using your imagination. Sometimes we need to visualize what this will be like. And Paul describes Jesus' return with some colorful language here. And... Um, Uh, In verse 16 in in your Bibles, he says, The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, this is wonderful, colorful language, and it's, it's meant to help us imagine how glorious it's going to be. But I think we would be wise to... Uh, be cautious in how we apply it to what it is literally going to be like. Uh, and just to use some healthy caution there. Um, but because Paul is using some wonderful Old Testament imagery to describe the return of Jesus. In fact, it comes from uh, when God met the people on Mount Sinai. If you remember in the book of Exodus, God comes on the mountain to meet the people, and it is glorious and it is uh, powerful. And we read about what happens in Exodus 19.16. It says, In the third day when morning came, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people in the camp shuddered. I mean, they could feel the presence of God. They could see His power with the cloud and the lightning. Can you imagine what that would be like, this loud sound of a trumpet? When God met with the people, He descended upon Mount Sinai. Do you see the connection? Paul is saying in the same way, when Jesus descends, not to Mount Sinai, but back to the world, oh my goodness, there will be a a loud sound, a loud command of God, and it's going to be glorious. Now, Paul has these three things, the the loud command, the trumpet call, the voice of the archangel. Are these all three different things? Are these all three ways of saying the same thing? You know, we can't be sure. But we know that this command or this, this sound, it, it has the, the powerful effect of raising the dead in Christ. And see, this is really what the Thessalonian Christians were wondering. They were so thinking about Jesus' return, they wondered about, well, what's going to happen to 
those who have died in Christ. Are they going to be there when Jesus returns? And this is what Paul is saying. Yes, the dead in Christ will rise when Jesus returns. All the believers who have died and all the believers who happen to be still alive will meet Jesus. That's what it says in verse 17. If you look at it in your Bibles. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them, those who are raised, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. So basically Paul is saying, whoever is still alive when Jesus returns will be reunited with Jesus and with those who have died in Christ before. Can you imagine that? 2,000 years or, or more. I mean, who knows how long this will be. But if it happened now, it would be 2,000 years of brothers and sisters, former members of your church, members of your family, saints that you have only read about in the history books, the apostles, the, uh, all the people we read about uh, in the Bible, the saints. We will be with them. The dead in Christ will rise first, and we will meet them in the, with the Lord when He returns. Oh, it's going to be glorious. It is going to be glorious. Now, another interesting thing about this passage is that it says we will meet Jesus. Uh, it says we'll meet Jesus in the air. Now, again, this may be colorful language here, uh, but I think something very interesting is happening. Now, this word meeting in the Greek, it's a word that's used often to greet a dignitary or the emperor uh, who would be coming to a city or to a colony uh, outside the city gates. You see, you would never expect the, em the emperor just to come into your city without a greeting. No, the, the people of the city would go out into the vicinity and provide a celebration to welcome the emperor back into the city gates. And I think it's fair to say this is how we should think about Jesus' return. Uh, because we are not going into the air to stay in the air forever. We know that the end of this story is not this mystical experience in the air in heaven. No, we know that heaven and earth, these two dimensions, will be reunited as one with the new heavens and a new earth. And so the believers are meeting the Lord in the air to welcome Him right back down, to finally establish the work He set out to do, to establish His forever kingdom upon the earth. That's where the story is going. Jesus will be at the center, and it will be a renewal of the world as we know it. Can you see how glorious this is going to be? We can't even fathom, the, fathom this. So when Jesus returns, we're going to see him visibly. We're going to have a face-to-face -face reunion with him and with all believers. And Jesus will establish his forever kingdom upon the earth. It's going to be incredible, and this is the hope that we have. And, you, and like many Christians, people wonder, well, when can we expect this to happen? And the that leads me to my next point, which comes from the scholar Stephen Siemens again. And so his point is, point number three, Jesus' return is certain to happen, but uncertain as to when it'll happen. Jesus' return, it's certain to happen, but uncertain as to when it will happen. Paul continues his teaching in 1 Thessalonians 5, in verses 1 through 2. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 
Now, times and dates, that refers to the end of the world when Jesus returns, and that's what Paul means by the day of the Lord, the day when Jesus returns. And Paul says, as Jesus uh, also taught, that it's going to happen like a thief in the night. Now, how many, you, how many of you have ever had a thief warn you that they were coming in the night to take something from you? Has that happened to anybody? Okay, I don't see any hands raised in this room, so, so nobody's raising their hand. Okay, no, the thieves do not warn you. It happens suddenly, and you can't uh, be certain of when it will happen. And that's what Jesus' return will be like. It will be sudden, and there won't be a clear, explicit warning that it's going to happen. I like what Leith Samuel says. I think, I don't, maybe I have this on the screen. No, I don't. Uh, Leith Samuel says this. If there is one thing certain about the timing of the Lord's return, it is this, that we cannot be certain of the timing. We can't be certain. It's inevitable, yet it's unpredictable. And in fact, Jesus tells us that it's not our place to know these things. Uh, if you remember back to the ascension, once again, right before Jesus uh, uh, commissions his disciples one last time, they gather around him and they ask him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. You see, as human beings, we long to know things. We, we want to know the truth. And that's so good. But this is one of those things that God has not granted for us to know. In His wisdom, in His sovereign wisdom, uh, it, He has uh, declared it to be that we will not, we cannot know the time of the Lord's return. And so it is good and, and it's wise to submit ourselves to this lack of knowledge. We just don't know, but we know it's going to happen. And that's the tension that we have to live with with this, this teaching. We have to live with the fact that Jesus may return at any time. Uh, and we have to live with the fact that he may not return in our lifetime. He may not. And that's the tension that we have, we have to live with. So we have to live with, li we have to live with a long-term view to minister as, as if God is going to extend our years and maybe his coming is delayed. But we also have to live as if he might return and to be prepared for both situations. It's going to happen, but we don't know when. And that's how the Lord intended for us to live our lives in Him and for Him. Let me recap what I've said here today. Jesus' return, it's going to be personal. It's going to be visibly glorious and powerful. And it is certain to happen, but it's uncertain as to when it'll happen. Now, we are going to spend another, a whole sermon in this series dedicated to talking about how we, we can be prepared for Jesus' return. But let me just say this today. I hope today that you will no longer consider Jesus' return a secondary issue in your faith. I hope today that you'll no longer be embarrassed that it's been 2,000 years and that God has His timing. I hope that you won't let the details distract you, but that you will embrace this belief as our world's greatest hope. Because that is what this world needs. We need the hope of Jesus' return, don't we? We need the hope that He is going to restore all the brokenness. This can't be how the world goes on forever and ever. No, we need the Lord to come and to judge and to heal this land. And He will heal all of the brokenness in our world. And His own 
glorious, his glorious presence will be with us forever and ever. It's going to be glorious, and it's our world's greatest hope.